you would turn to Isaiah 60. Uh, for those of you who aren't with us regularly, uh, we're in John's Gospel, and uh, we finished with a section from John 8, Jesus declaring that he was the, the light of the world, and so I thought it appropriate for Advent that we uh, investigate that topic a little more and look at uh, some Old Testament and New Testament passages uh, that talk about Christ as the light who has come and who is to come again. So uh, that's what we're working with right now, and Isaiah 60 is one of those key passages in this process. So uh, let us hear the word of our God. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The nations will come to your light, the kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephath. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kadar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me, the, sh the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their gold, sorry, their, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls. And their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings led in procession. For the nation and the kingdom that, you, uh, that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid to waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord." the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of the nations, you shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One 
of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseer's peace and your taskmaster's righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous." They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. There's a lot there. (laughs) We'd better pray. Father, thank you for sending the light of the world into the world, that we might behold your glory, that we might know truth, that we might have life. And so we ask that you would send him here by the, by the Spirit, so that indeed we might behold your glory in the Scriptures this morning, so that we might know the truth more fully, that we might believe it more firmly, that we might have a deep and abiding hope and walk more completely in the light, to the praise of your glorious grace, to us in Christ Jesus, our Savior and King. Amen. One of my favorite movies was The Matrix. I would not say that was my favorite trilogy, however. (laughs) It went downhill after the first one, in my opinion, anyway. But one of the things I want us to think about this morning comes from that trilogy, and that is the city of Zion. All of those who had been set free from the matrix were hiding in the city that they had created under the earth because long ago there had been nuclear war, and so the top of the, the planet has been, had been devastated. But for them, Zion represented hope, and yet the Zion that they lived in was not one that you would want to live in ordinarily. The people wore very drab sorts of clothing. It was a very dark place. It's just sort of reeked of oppression and fear. Because they always lived in the fear that their enemies, the machines above, would come to destroy their city, their people. To find hope, they had this very um, sensual sort of religion that you see in the, the second movie of the three. Trying to grant them some sort of hope in the midst of all of this darkness, and misery. And as I think of Zion in the Matrix, I see of great similarity to the Zion or Jerusalem of Isaiah's day. It was not a place that was filled with hope. It was a place that was filled with discouragement and filled with fear. For during Isaiah's day, Sennacherib mocked the Lord and laid siege to the city, and they were saved by God's merciful grace. And yet, they lived in fear of Assyria, and they lived later on in fear 
of Babylon. The people had lost much of their hope. They had turned to the gods of the nations, in many ways, sensual religions, to find some sort of pleasure in the midst of what they probably experienced as unrelenting sadness and misery. But what Isaiah wants to tell these people, and for us to hear as well, is that that is not the end of the story. It's picking it up, so to speak, in the middle of the story. For God is about to set things right, he says. The big idea this morning is that the Lord fills the new Jerusalem with glory, with people, and with wealth. That's what we're going to focus on this morning, those three things. There's more. We could, I mean, we could spend weeks in this passage but we'll just spend one, and I won't say everything that I want to say. And for that, you will be glad. <laughs> Let's start with this. The Lord shares his glory with Zion. And that's what we pick up on in the first few verses that go on in this passage. But let's think again. Let's just pause for a second. Isaiah 59. Okay, This is not written in a vacuum. It follows directly on the heels of Isaiah 59, which focused on the evil and oppression, and then has this glimmer of hope with the idea of redemption. We see this in verse uh, 26. In the midst of all of, this all of this oppression, and a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from, from transgression, declares the Lord. And so Isaiah 60 is in a large part an expansion on that idea that we find in 59. What's going to happen when the Redeemer comes? What is he going to do to Zion? And that's really what I think Isaiah 60 is about. But first, even here in 60, we have this reminder that darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. There is this context that must be reckoned with of darkness and obscurity that takes place. The second phrase, that, that idea of thick darkness, points us to this sort of oppressive darkness. And if you can think of it this way, you know, we live in Tucson, the land that hates light pollution. So, you know, if you go out at night and there's no, there's no moon... It's dark. If there are clouds, it's darker. When you drive, it's hard to find where you need to go because you can't see a sign because it's so dark. But that's not really dark enough. Think of my house for a moment, those of you who have been in my house during the summer. Stephanie, you know, it's like a cave, okay? Because we want to keep all the heat out. And so we, we put insulation in the windows upstairs, and it's very dark up there. But it's darker still when a monsoon rolls through and the power goes out. Think of that for a moment. The darkness becomes oppressive. You have to do I remember where everything is, or am I about to trip over something? You know, until you can find the flashlight or the cell phone with the flashlight app, you're really groping in the darkness, hoping you don't hurt yourself. It's an oppressive darkness, and if you're honest, fear, a fearful 
sort of darkness. At least I get afraid. Think of my kids. How dark it feels. And that's the idea. This sort of oppressive, fearful darkness that is there. And this is meant to bring to our minds, I think, Genesis 1, which is why we read from Genesis 1 this morning. That darkness that hovered over the face of the sea in which God is about to dispel. And here, God is going to dispel the darkness of sin and oppression. That God is about to say, let there be light. The God who created that way is about to recreate that way. John 1 puts it this way, with the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And that is one of the unique things about light and darkness. Darkness cannot overcome light. It scatters, so to speak, when light comes. Darkness occurs not because darkness defeats light, but that the sun goes down, retreats for the night. Darkness is really the absence of the light. But once the light shows up, the darkness recedes. And so we're going to see a receding darkness in this text. But something more than that, he declares, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And he's speaking specifically of Zion. This is a promise for God's city God's people. Think of that for a moment. For your light has come, okay? As a result of that, you are to arise and shine. This is not directed so much to the light of the world, but what happens because the light of the world has come. And there's, there's a response that is going to be required by the people of God. And the first response is, arise, shine. Zion itself, the people of God themselves, they will shine because the light has come. They will be radiant and shine forth because the light of God has shone upon them. Isaiah clarifies. That light is the glory of God. The parallelism in in between the, you know, 60 verse 1, A and B. The light is the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. What is the glory of the Lord? That's something we have a hard time just putting words to. It's a concept that we really have a hard time grasping and expressing. And I I think David Jackman in his book on teaching Isaiah, puts it well. The glory of God is the outshining of the inner essence of God's person and character so that he himself is the light illuminating the world's thick darkness. There's a typo if you're looking at your notes, and that quote is in there. It's thick darkness. We see glimmers of this sometimes when you notice a person who has a godly character, and 
they seem to be radiant in a sense. There's a glow about them, not a you know, physical glow about them, not like you know the pictures we see uh, from the Middle Ages where people have little halos on them or something. But there's just, you know those people. There's just something about them that radiates, that draws others to them. Their goodness, their kindness, uh, their gentleness, we're drawn to those people. There's, there's sort of an unseen radiance about them. That's the idea. But of course, God's goodness and mercy and gentleness and patience are perfect and therefore, infinitely perfect, and therefore His glory or radiance is infinitely perfect, infinitely bright, majestic and glorious. The weight of God's perfection shines like a sun. You can't look at the sun. It burns your eyes out. That is how powerful His glory is. It's that amazing. But we see again from John 1, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we talked before about how um, the glory is veiled in part in the incarnation, and in a sense it is to protect us from the blinding glory, the overwhelming glory of God, which no man can see and live. And so the incarnation is, in a sense, not just God's grace to us in the fact that this is the one who will die for our sins, but also a grace to us so that His justice, His glory does not destroy us. But that glory came to Zion all those years ago in the person of Jesus Christ. He began to dispel the darkness like the sunrise. I don't often see the sunrise. (laughs) I'm a night person, not a morning person. But you might imagine the sun coming up over the mountains. I usually see it the other way. And if you've been on my Facebook lately, I've been taking a lot of pictures of the sun going down over the mountains behind my house. Because I find it beautiful. For that moment, that brief moment in time, where it seems that that light shines in such a way that it just fills the sky with reds and oranges, not just where the sun is, but as I walk I could see even clouds in the east reflecting that redness, that glory that arises. It's a beautiful thing. And just like that, the light dispels the darkness. Later on in this text, we see this command as well. You know, there's an objective thing. You will see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. And so there's this reality that goes on in, in this text that we see the, you see the glory. You yourself will be radiant. You will reflect the glory of God. But also your heart will thrill and exult. Men who are married. Remember that moment? When the... The song began, and everybody stood, and you turned and looked, 
and you saw her coming down the aisle. I see your faces when I do wedding ceremonies, and that's the moment I love, is to see the face of the man as he is enraptured by the beauty of his bride. Everyone else thinks she's beautiful. But he really thinks she's beautiful. And that moment when he lifts the veil from her face and he sees her with all the made-up kind of stuff and he sees this glory going on right there, you know? Imagine that for a moment. Remember for a moment that feeling, that rejoicing inside, that exulting inside. You just want to burst out at the seams. But imagine for a second that it never ends. That's what this is talking about. A joy that time cannot contain. A joy that so fills your heart that it's like it's going to burst with joy and pleasure and you can't help but scream and shout. It's greater than when your favorite team wins the championship. And it never ends. It is a joy that will never end. Ladies, think of it this way. I, I, I gave the guys one. I had to give you one, don't I? When you hold... Sorry. My own memories. <laughs> when you hold your child for the first time, You've been through the travail and the pains of childbirth, and now you hold this beautiful little child. And I don't think it gets any worse, you know, any lesser, you know, when you start multiplying the children out. You know, when you hold them for the first time, and that joy that fills your heart, and again, imagine it never goes away. They never grow up and yell at you. Or whatever it is that, you know, makes it all seems like it goes away. That moment, not just captured in time, but extending forever. That is the picture that we have here. That is the picture I want to fill your, your minds and hearts that you hope. Now, Moses saw the glory of God. But we see in Exodus as well as in 2 Corinthians that when Moses saw the glory of God, it it, it began, it's like his face absorbed some of the glory, so to speak, and his face shone. Okay? You can read about it in Exodus, you can read about it in 2 Corinthians, but there was something about his, about that, that shining that happened. It began to diminish as he was out of the presence of God. And so to protect the people and as well as protect Moses, He wore a veil over his face after those moments until the the glory had departed, so to speak. Here's the thing. Our glory will not fade like Moses' glory, but grow. It will increase. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about this in in that context of Moses, and he says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory 
to another. And so the idea here is that as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in the gospel, what is supposed to happen, it's not something you do, so don't feel like I'm saying this is what you need to do, but this is what's happening. God is restoring us by glory, from glory to glory, restoring the image of God within us, conforming us to the likeness of Christ as we see in places like Romans 8, 28, and 29. As we behold the glory, we're going to become more glorious because we're going to become more like Him. Now, it's from glory to glory. It means it's almost like fits and starts. There are going to be times of growth in that glory, but the, the reality is, is that when we finally see Jesus face to face, what is it says happens to us? We become like him. And so when we see him face to face, either at his return or when we go to meet him, there will be sort of this jump forward into perfection where we will be completely like him. We will no longer be sort of like him. Okay? This has begun with Christ's first advent. We have a mere foretaste of our future glory. But we are, as the Scripture says, children of the light. Ephesians 5. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 1 Thessalonians 5 has this idea as well. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. And so something has fundamentally changed in us in our conversion. We are now called children of light. We reflect the light of God, though not perfectly. One of my favorite movies um, is called Shine. Shine. And if you haven't heard about it, um, actually it won a lot of Academy Awards back in the late 90s. And uh, Jeffrey Rush is the main actor. He plays David Helfgott, who was a pianist. And he was a brilliant pianist, but something happened. Mental illness happened. Uh, schizophrenia happened. And so when the movie begins, you have sort of this... Uh, uh, shuffling, bedraggled guy who kind of walking through a rainstorm at night and kind of look and then comes across this restaurant and peers in and sees all of these well-dressed people having a great time and he stumbles in and everyone's thinking, oh no, what's this guy doing here? And that's until he sits at the piano and begins to play. And they realize that, that something is going on here. And the, the, the story in the movie Shine, which is based on David's life, is about his descent into mental illness, but also the love of a woman who brought him, not out of his mental illness, but restored his capacity to share his gift of music with the world, however imperfectly. And it was weird as I uh, went and Googled him this week on the Internet, I found very harsh critical appraisals of his playing. And part of me was like, can we cut the dude a little slack? <laughs> okay, he's not the greatest pianist who ever lived. But think of the odds that he is overcoming in the midst of his playing. And that's us. We'll get, I'll touch on this a little bit again. But we're not all there yet. We're still hindered. We do shine forth the light, but we do not shine forth perfectly. Perfectly. 
This light, this change that takes place is not merely external. It's not like we suddenly have reflectors upon our body, but we see that they, that us, we are changed. And even in this context, we were struck and now God has compassion on us. He has changed their mourning to exaltation or rejoicing. Just like we see in Psalm 30. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. My Lord, oh my God, I will give thanks to you forever. And that's the thing you don't see in the matrix. You don't see their mourning replaced with godly dancing in the presence of God, rejoicing that he has taken away their sackcloth and adorned them with gladness. So often we are discouraged by the darkness. We're discouraged by the unrighteousness we see in the world. We're discouraged by affliction. And as I think of this passage, I cannot help but think of William Cooper's hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Way, in this particular line, Ye fearful saints, fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. We're so fearful we think that these clouds of blessing are going to bring destruction to us. That they're going to break with judgment upon us. But God's intention is that they break with blessing on our hands. The last part of this I want us to, to think of just for a second, and we're going to build on this next week, is the idea that the Lord will be your everlasting light. The Lord will be your glory. Again, this is the second advent of Christ. This is the renewed creation that we see in Revelation 21 and 22. This is not about human progress. This is not about building a a human utopia on earth. It's not about the success of education and science and technology. It's about Christ coming and establishing this, just as we see in the very last verse here. I am the Lord in its time. I will hasten it. And so the Lord of glory removes the shame of his people and fills them with his glory. Fear not. That was the longest point. The second thing I want us to consider from this is that the Lord fills Zion with people as well as righteousness. You see, he uses these pictures of the exile, these pictures of the restoration, but this is meant to be something far greater than those things ever were. See, as we... Look at this. It's tempting for us to see this as merely as a picture of the return from exile in Babylon and Assyria. It's greater than that. It's more profound than that. But that gives us a bit of a glimpse, a a glimmer, a foretaste of what this will be like. He talks about how the sons and daughters of Israel will return from far off and fill in Zion. Okay, this is not 1948. Okay? This is not about... The, the reestablishment of a nation called Israel on earth. That's not what this is about. Far greater than that. But they come from everywhere. They come from every point of the compass. And as he brings it up, and he's naming these various places, they come from near and they come from far. They return to the Lord their God, not just a city. This city represents not a physical point on a map. It represents a city a gathering of people 
wholly devoted to the Lord their God. But here's the great thing, is they're not alone. Nations will come to your light. They're like moths to the flame. They're attracted by the light. And we see that salvation for Isaiah was extended to the nations. We come to that, that, that global scope of salvation yet again. And in Acts, we see the fulfillment of this and the expansion of the gospel to the Gentiles, which actually fulfills the Abrahamic promise in Genesis 12. That idea of being a blessing to the nations. Christ being the seed of Abraham, as Paul talks about in Galatians, now brings this blessing to the nations. This blessing that is salvation. And so we see that Gentiles who receive Messiah are grafted into Israel and receive all God's blessings. Now think about this for a moment, saints of Desert Springs. What do we have here in our midst? We have saints who come from all over the world. Okay? India. That's pretty far from here. France. Africa. Canada. (laughs) All kinds of places that God gathers together to be one people, one flock, together with one another. He's already doing it. It is taking place throughout this world as he gathers people together. These people seek salvation within the walls of Zion, which God has once again made beautiful. That city that Sennacherib almost destroyed, that city that um, Nebuchadnezzar eventually would destroy, that city, so to speak, gets made beautiful. He declares that he is their savior, their redeemer. In fact, he is the mighty one who who ushers in this new order. And as we shall see, one that is without sin. You see, he's delivered them. That's the idea of of savior. He's delivered them from a great crisis. And it's not the crisis of of an army outside the gates. It's really the crisis of sin within the heart. Okay, he delivers us from the problem of our the sin in our heart and the righteous holy God outside of us who holds us accountable. It's not just that. That idea of redemption. The idea of buying back. We see a picture of that in um, Hosea when his wayward wife is sold at auction as a slave. And he buys her back for himself. That idea of of, uh, redemption, those of us who are older remember H&S, green stamps. I remember going with my mother a couple of times with our big book of stamps that we got at the gas station and wherever else you you got those things. Isn't that kind of funny that they used to have, used to, you know, get all your stamps when you bought gas? It's 
weird. Then you go to this place and you have X number of books and you, and you get to go through the catalog and say, oh, I want to change in these 14 books for this silver set or whatever it was. There was all kinds of stuff in this place. He's exchanged himself for us that we might have life instead of death. And he is the mighty one, the one who lacks no strength, who is able to accomplish this. He exhibits his strength in gathering his people and then in protecting his people. But here's the, here's the amazing thing. Your people, not just happy, shall all be righteous. There's not going to be anyone in there that you're going to have to fear, including yourself and what you will do. They'll all be perfectly righteous, meaning they're not going to harm one another. There will be no more selfishness. There will be no more pride in all the ways it manifests itself. You see, that was one of the things that in the Matrix, like Neo couldn't do. You see, he could get people out of the matrix and put them back in the real world. And for those of you who don't, haven't watched it, don't worry about that. Okay? But he couldn't change them. He couldn't deliver them from themselves. You see, within the computer program, he had all sorts of great powers and could stop bullets and fly and all of this stuff. But outside of the matrix, in Zion, he was an ordinary person with no special powers who could, couldn't help anybody more than the person next to them could. Jesus is not like that. Not only is he able to change you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, but he changes you. Not only does he impute his righteousness to us by faith, so that we are declared righteous by the Father in justification, but also he imparts his righteousness to us through the power of the Holy Spirit in sanctification, so that we, we not only are called righteous, but we become increasingly righteous. And so this idea of arise and shine, it brings with it the notion that our, we shine in part by our obedience. Our imperfect Obedience. One day we'll be perfect when we see Jesus face to face. But right now we shine forth in little glimpses and whatever. We're like a nightlight as opposed to a spotlight. But still, it's a light. And that's one way we shine. is by following Him, trusting Him, obeying Him. Yes, we are to shine as children of light with our feeble and imperfect obedience. Okay? Now, some of you who have very sensitive spirits, who are easily overcome with guilt and shame because you, you know that your failures... This is not a call to be perfect today or next week. For as Calvin and the Heidelberg Catechism say, we but make a small start in this thing called holiness in this life. 
In other words, relax. Relax. But some of you who are not very sensitive need to start caring about the sin that plagues you. About your lack of growth, perhaps, in godliness. Arise. Shine. Despised Zion will be filled with majesty and righteous people of every nation. Thirdly, the Lord transforms the nation's relationship with Zion. The nations that despised and destroyed and abandoned Zion are now going to love it and build it up. You see, it talks about how the sons of those who afflicted and despised you now are going to bend and bow low. They're going to humble themselves before God's people and join God's people. That's the idea here. And we see here what's going to explode, so to speak, in Philippians chapter 2, which, which we read in our Confession of Faith, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, even those that don't want to, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess, even if they don't want to, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. We see here in Isaiah 60 that kings that required tribute from Israel are now going to serve and submit to the Lord. And in history we see that as well, even in Rome. Rome, which at the time of Christ uh, oppressed Israel. And then after the time of Christ in the early church, often persecuted the people of God. Well, what happened? God made Constantine emperor. And Constantine made Christianity a legal religion. And it began to change Rome in many ways. In so many ways that when Rome fell, everyone blamed the Christians for making Rome soft. Further, we see the gates shall be open continually. In sense, there's no gates needed because the enemies have become friends. Secondly, there's no gates because now there is no night because the Lord is your light. But most clearly and importantly, we see here the point that Isaiah makes and that we will see again in Revelation is that the wealth of the nations is flooding through the gates. They can't close because it's like a huge convoy of wealth pouring in through the gates of Zion. Like a convoy you've never seen. I mean, we sit at those train stops, don't we? Watching the trains go by. How much longer is this train going to take? You know, some of them are over a mile long. But these will be trains that won't stop coming because they're so huge with the wealth of the nations. What an image, what a picture for us to think about, to contemplate. On this passage, Calvin notes, No one therefore can belong to God without dedicating and devoting to Him all that He has. When we had our uh, combined meeting of the session in Diaconate on Monday, we had to talk about the loan. 
and some jokes were made, because we also talked about the budget for next year. And so some jokes were made that Steve's going to start talking about money now. And, you know, if you've been here a while, you know I don't talk about money a whole lot. I only talk about money when the text talks about money. Guess what, folks? The text be talking about money. Okay? So I'm only saying this because the Bible says it. All right? But one of the ways we shine is that we offer our wealth to Christ. We offer our time. We offer our talents. And we saw some of that this morning with the, uh, the vocal ensemble. We offer our treasures indeed to him. And so as we looked at our budget, some of us went, it's a challenge this year. We're going to talk about it. We're going to reveal it next week, the great unveiling, so to speak. It's not done yet. We still have things to talk about with the budget. But you know, one of the things that we ended up having to do is we have to do this thing called the <clears throat> mortgage into the budget <laughs> on top of everything we had from last year. But here's the thing that I'm encouraged by, even though it looks like a daunting number at times. You've shown. This budget that we've been working on represents what the people of God have brought to God this year. You're already doing it, most of you. Actually, I don't know that because I don't look at who gives what. I, have, I don't want to know. Okay? You're shining. So if, if, you're, if you're sitting here going, oh, Steve just wants more money. I'm not saying that. I'm grateful. Because God has already been at work in your hearts to give. That's a beautiful thing. You're already shining. God's pleased. As the light of the world shines on us, we too begin to shine as his image is restored in us. What is now a flicker is eventually going to burst forth in the glorious brilliance that he fills Zion with glory. He fills it with righteousness, and he fills it with wealth by transforming us (laughs) by his glory so that we become righteous and we bring all that we have into his service. And when Jesus returns, this new Jerusalem shall fill the earth with God's glory. That give you hope. That give you encouragement. I hope so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this hopeful vision. We are so often inundated with uh, sad predictions of the future. We are often uh, overwhelmed with just distressing news. And we need this hope. We need to remember that Jesus is going to bring about something so incredibly good that our hearts are going to almost burst with joy and wonder. That it will overwhelm us and that we will not keep silent. And Father, I pray that even now, as you build that hope in us, help us not to keep silent, but to share that hope with a world that desperately needs hope.
And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.